Sheetal Sheth has the kind of career that is so wide-ranging that no matter what your interests are, you have probably heard of a project that she's been a part of. If you are a lover of indie movies, maybe you've seen her in the critically acclaimed films like ABCD and American Chai. Or you may know her from the cult classic The World Unseen. Perhaps you recognize her voice from her work in The Life of Pi and Family Guy. But what you may not know about her is that she is extremely political. Sheetal has always been vocal about her dedication to activism, which was not always an easy thing to do. Sheetal came onto the entertainment scene in the late 90s, a time where film casts were predominantly white. People of color were often placed in stereotypical roles a time where people like Harvey Weinstein ran the industry. Regardless, Sheetal has continued to champion for progressive causes throughout her career by finding ways to empower marginalized communities through various modes. Her latest and most different venture has been writing the children's book, Always Anjali, to normalize and uplift those who have non-Western names. She is candid, pioneering, and ever so real. Let's welcome Sheetal. I am your host, Sadia Khan, and you are listening to Immigrantly. And if it was a tough name, the kid would say, whatever you want to call me is fine. And so it's up to the teacher. So the teacher, I would say, no, no, say to them, no, no. What do your mom and dad call you? And let them say it. And I'll and, and even say, like, just help me with it. And so one of the things I do in my presentations is I say, everyone raise your anyone raise your hand if you get frustrated because it's been four or five or six times and someone can't say your name wrong. And I always raise my hand because I'm like, I did too. So let's start with Hollywood. Okay, <laughs> let's jump right in. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of people in Hollywood that have defined who you are as an artist, as an individual. Or but, tried to, possibly. Or tried to, right? right? But I'm curious, how would you describe yourself as an artist when people think of Sheetal Sheth? What do you want people to think? Here's the thing. We're talking right now in 2020. And I've been in this business for over 20 years. So the conversation, if you want to know what I was dealing with in 1998 when I started versus now, is a very different conversation. Right. I mean, I went from literally being in rooms where they said I would have to change my name to work or get the job that I was apparently picked for, but they wanted me to change my name in order to actually fulfill that. You know, all these things were something that I dealt with on a regular basis. And so... I learned, unfortunately, very early on that the naivety that I went into college with, where it was very, like, wide-eyed, I'm going to acting school in New York, it was a dream, I was so excited to, you know, Tisch School of the Arts was something I had only dreamt of, and then to be in the halls and productions and do performances where it was really about merit and becoming the best version of yourself, and then you go to the real world. And I was not prepared. I certainly did not expect that my background would become pretty much, it felt as important as my work hmm. very early on. I think now it comes up and it's a different conversation, but back in the day, it felt very much 
like I had to defend it and prove myself in a way that didn't feel good. So how is it different now versus 20 years ago? I think we've come a long way. We mm-hmm. still have galaxies to go. <laughs> I think the conversations are being had. I think people are conscious for the most part, but I don't think real change happens until you have people in the positions of power that reflect the world. And I think we are far away from having women, people of color, people who are generally marginalized in powerful positions. When we start seeing that, when we see them being the decision makers, the creators, the people who are making the final decisions, that is when I will feel a little bit more a sense of just relief where I don't have to always feel like I'm like needing to educate or needing to explain or fix or I just saw something a few weeks ago from a huge studio that has so much money behind it and and it was really disappointing and I and I said to myself just because this particular thing finally acknowledged us and is doing content that has to do with my culture doesn't mean I give them a pass and I thought in 2020 how could they be so you know tone deaf you know on 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 several things so we've come far but again we we have so far to go and in terms of representation of a culture or an ethnicity identity do you think it's enough what's happening right now because i was reading one of your tweets where you talk about how actors of color they were asked to emulate generic accents mm-hmm. having diversity is one thing but having true representation is completely different thing i think the problem is the conversation for so long legitimately so earlier mm. you know when i started was there's all these stereotypes out there and we wanted to break those stereotypes and so for me that's not the point the point is having layers and nuance and representation of all of the stories from our culture and what was happening and the reason why i included was upset about what was happening is that you only saw one depiction of a culture and it was usually defined by a white person yeah. by a white man and how exactly. they saw us right and so for example that thread that you saw how i felt it actually had come from something i had just seen and i was so upset my husband was like oh my god you're so riled up and i <laughs> and i i was like trying to figure out the best way to express and this was something i was invited to where this studio wanted me as someone who's a voice in the south asian community to then promote their thing and i was really deciding like what do i do here i have friends involved in this i you know i don't blame the actors and i ended up not i didn't say anything about it and say it was bad i didn't say it was good i just decided to write this thread <laughs> on twitter that wasn't necessarily related to that because it's how i feel about everything in general and this idea of like it's about authenticity and if you don't have people in the room that represent all the layers you know then you're not going to get that authenticity you're going to see these this content and you're going to feel like i was cringing on so many levels and i was like this is not how i should feel in 2020 where there's no excuse about money there's no excuse about access like this studio could have done the work and they had the money and you know I just I was really disappointed. Sheetal, have you ever thought of directing in addition to acting <laughs> because I feel like people like you should be part of storytelling. Right. It's like not just in front of the camera but also behind the camera. What do you think about that? Well, I produce. And so for me, 
creating content is very important. And so like you, like you just said, yes, I think I should be creating content. And I have been. And I've been producing work that I hope finds its way. I have a number of things in development right now, which I'm very excited about. I started writing children's books, which I think is something that is so dear to me. And I feel like Getting people when they're young is the best thing we can do, yeah. actually. So that is is a huge piece of my life. But yes, I am. I'm, I I want to create more and more and more and more. So let's talk about your childhood. And you've talked about this in other interviews as well. That you developed fascination with acting from an early age. Yes. What is about the art of acting that captured your attention and how has it evolved for you? I found when I started acting, well, when I was first in a play, it was something I had never felt like that before. I had never, you know, coming from a traditional Indian family with immigrant parents that stressed education and the academic part of my life. I didn't really have much social and emotional kind of attention, you know? Mm. And so for me, finding something that hooked into that part of me was electrifying, really. Mm. And it opened myself up in a way that I had never felt before. And I didn't really know what it was and I didn't know how to do it, but I knew I wanted more of it. And so it kind of became this quest of mine to, you know, just explore it more, not certainly thinking that it was going to be my career, but then I quickly realized it needed to be what I did with my life. And then as it's evolved, it has only strengthen, you know, this firm belief I have is the best way to make impact and to change people's hearts and minds is through stories and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, whatever the medium is that I'm involved in, it's always about hopefully impinging with a story and an experience that someone can then hopefully feel empathy for and then maybe look at the world a little bit differently. So you are, as you mentioned, kid of immigrants. Yes. And I was thinking, given the fact that you were already navigating two different cultures at home, right? So there is a culture at home and then there's a culture outside. Do you think that in a way help you assume different characters? Because as a kid of immigrants, you are already conditioning yourself to be one and the other. Do you think that plays a role for an actor to excel in, in their art? Well, I think as an actor, I just have a lot of stuff to pull from. Yes, I'm a child of immigrants, and that lends itself to a multitude of stories and experiences to pull from. But more so, just my life experiences mm-hmm. as an actor, like you pull from everything. And so the immigrant experience is one part of that. But, you know, I grew up in a small town. I went to a Catholic school. We're not Catholic. I, there's so many things and parts of my life that when I look back at it, I'm kind of like, what? Yeah. But it's, they've shaped me, you know. They've shaped all of me. Talking about going to Catholic school, so your parents practice Jainism. Yes. And But you went to a Catholic yes. school, as you said. And this is very common in Pakistan as well. There are a lot of Catholic schools and kids go to those schools. My sister went to one. How was that experience like? Was it like a cultural shock? I mean, I didn't know. You know, mm. I went since I was, since elementary, like nursery oh. school to elementary school. So I didn't know any different. But I did feel like once I was old enough to realize that my parents told the teachers, to not let me, because we had religion class, and then we would go to mass every Friday. And I was told that I wasn't allowed to participate in getting the communion, so I would sit there, or any of the sacraments, like you would have confession and reconciliation and all these things. But, you know, we would be reading in class, and I was the best reader in my class. So I was often chosen to go and read from the scripture during the mass. So I would be up there reading a piece of the gospel or the Bible, (laughs) and then I would be sitting there, 
like the only person in the pew not getting communion. Not that I wanted to, but, you know, it's all these places that you feel confused, left out. Then why am I doing that? And my parents, look, they were just trying to get through the day. I'm sure, yeah. They, you know, came here. My dad came in the 60s. My mom in the early 70s didn't speak great English at the time, just barely making enough money to get, you know, they had three children. They don't have time. They they didn't have the luxury that we do to, like, sit and talk to our children about, like, life. (laughs) Exactly. You know what I mean? And so I just had to try to kind of make sense of it myself, but I really was not skilled at that. Did you ever have a conversation with your parents about why they moved? I don't think many kids of immigrants do that. They don't even know why their parents are here. Right. We have, I will say now that I've had children, I have two small kids, we have more conversations like that because Mm -hmm. my mom's around a lot. She helps a ton. I'm so grateful to have such a rich cultural tradition that values the intergenerational side mm-hmm. and kind of like raising kids is, is a village effort, which is very much my family. Which is true, yeah. Um, and so we were able to have conversations that we didn't have. Let's talk about your first movie. I okay. believe it's ABCD, that right? That was my first movie, Okay, yes. and it's an indie movie. Yes. Um, it got a lot of recognition. Yes. How did you land that role? <laughs> and was it intimidating in the beginning? Funny enough, I went to go see a theater piece a one-man show, actually, you might have heard of it, called Sakina's Restaurant by an actor named Asif Manvi ah. back 20-some years ago. He's now a dear friend of mine. And, and I was so enraptured with, I've never, I never saw, I didn't know other actors that were brown. <laughs> I didn't even know somebody that would, like, talk about the South Asian experience mm-hmm. the way this show did. And I was so blown away by it that I, I wanted to meet him, and we met afterwards. And, and I was actually moving to L.A. like a month later, Because you grew up in New Jersey, right? I grew up in New Jersey, and then we moved to Pennsylvania, Mm. and then I went to NYU. (laughs) But while I was at NYU, because teaching and working with kids is as important to me as acting is, and so I was part of AmeriCorps, which is President Clinton was an initiative that was like a domestic peace corps specifically aimed at education Mm. and underserved students. So I was teaching for over four years while I was at school and developing lesson plans for these different students. And And then when I graduated, I was working with the public theater, and somebody who was involved with that program with me had told me about this, so you should come to this show. Pretty much because I was Indian. You know how people assume that you should, like, you know, yeah, all you of should, a All Indians and Pakistanis should, should to, watch each other. But yeah. I get it. Like, there's not many of us, so they felt like we should know each other. <laughs> so I went to it, and thankfully I did, because I was blown away by it. And he's, you know, one of my best friends in my life now. But at the time, I was like, oh, my God. And I had so many questions for him. And, and as I was leaving, he said, you know, I'm doing this movie. You should audition for it. They're looking for the lead person. I know you're an actress. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And I said, Well, I'm I'm leaving for LA, but you know, I'm happy to audition if if you think it's you know. And he said yes. So, you know, we sent over my headshot, and I had gotten audition, and then I ended up after several auditions getting the part, which was wow. I know. <laughs> so, what was the first day like at work, like on set? You know, it wasn't my first time on a set, but it was my first time in a movie. I mean, so Asif Manvi played my love interest. My brother was played by Farhan Tahir, who's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yes, so he was in it, and Madhu Jafri played my mother. So the three of them were very seasoned, experienced actors. (laughs) And so I feel very lucky that actually that was my first family experience in a film because they really, I mean— 
unfortunate for other movies that didn't quite fit up to it. They set the bar, and they were lovely. And and Farhan and Asif, I, actually the movie I just did that was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest. And so they are dear friends of mine and, you know, friends for life, really. You go through something like that, which this movie was, an independent film. You know, you're either going to love the person or not. And, <laughs> uh, and I love them dearly. I love them dearly. And so it was more just me taking everything in and learning and just yeah. knowing my lane and knowing my job is here and I'm really here to learn and just like follow what is being done and not, you know, just like absorb as much as I can. That was my goal. So what was the most valuable takeaway from that first movie? I found having allies, having people that you felt like you could trust Mm. and had your back. That is something that I value to this day in a way that I don't think we talk about as enough because the support and the feeling like you have that someone has your back is something that carries a lot of weight. So let's talk about the movie that I watched. I can't think straight. Okay. Um, <laughs> in fact, you did two movies with Shamim Sarif. She's yes. a director. Amazing, Amazing person. Yes. And I interviewed her a few weeks back and I was telling you that she is the kindest, sweetest person I have ever met. She's the best. And she is so mellow, at least during interview, she was extremely <laughs> mellow. Uh, so you play a lesbian in both those movies. Yes. Um, they were released around the same time, 2007, 2008. At the time, LGBTQ representation was not what it is today. Correct. Sheetal, did you think or were you ever worried that this would be controversial or were you just unfazed by it? I... When I got the script for I Can't Think Straight, because I got that script first, was so taken by the love story. And, mm-hmm. you know, as we know, it's based on Shamim and Hanan's true life story, right. which is probably why it came through the pages. Like the amount of love and everything they had to go through to be together really touched me in a mm-hmm. way that I'm like, I really want to tell the story and I hope I get to be a part of this. of this. And so, you know, it was not a question to do the movie. And when they offered it to me, I was thrilled and excited in, you know, and it wasn't until, I mean, again, I'm obviously very naive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I didn't really think about the the fact that I was playing someone who was gay. Like Mm. she, like for me, I approached it as an actor in the sense of Layla was very much struggling with her sexuality through that movie. And so I really needed to figure out how to tell that story and and how best could I portray that was really what I was focused on and finding the truth of her. And then when the movie came out, much, by the way, like several of my movies, (laughs) who which were ahead of their time in so many ways, you know, I think a lot of my movies and my roles were the first in representation in different ways. And so I should have known. But, you know, there was a huge backlash and there was an equal amount of love. Hmm. And the amount of, I mean, I still get a message a day, at least, about I Can't Think Straight or The World Unseen. These movies, I think, have touched the audiences globally in a way that I certainly didn't expect and I'm so heartened by because when it came out, I also got a lot of emails and messages thrown at me like, you should be dead. Why would you do this? Why would you put this out there? You know, people who obviously had issues with the sexuality of the women. Hmm. Really, it was striking and really alarming, actually, at how violent, how in like zero to 60, it went to the place of violence, you Mm -hmm. know? And I thought, okay, we can talk about this, but why does it get so 
violent and hostile and angry. Even ABCD, you know, I played a, a woman who was struggling on a lot of levels, and she had in, in the movie you see her have sex with several men. Hmm. And for a South Asian female, <laughs> yeah, that was for the community. You know, something that they hadn't seen before. It was shocking. Yeah, because there's a premium on virginity. So it's, exactly. it's very different how they approach being virgin or not. Exactly. Hmm. And so that was very hard for a lot of people in the community. And funny enough, though, when I went to India with that movie, everyone was like, oh, my God, we've never seen a movie like this. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for, like, allowing us as women to show all of our sides and not have to hide our sexuality and not have to feel like we're this ridiculous epitome of what people imagine us to be, which is not accurate, you know. So it's just it's been a fascinating, you know, and, and I need to, like, write about, like, all the movies I've done that the receptions in different countries allow for different conversations and have really stayed with me, you know. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about I Can't Think Straight, like I said, we just had our 10th anniversary a few years ago and we, we went to London to be part of this conference. It was the centerpiece of the conference because people still love that movie mm-hmm. and it sets a bar for a story about two women that I don't think has still been captured on film the way that Shamim you know, did. And I think that's why it's so special. And if there were a sequel of I Can't (laughs) Think Straight, how do you think people's reception would be different this time around? Well, I think we have a built-in audience, (laughs) so that's nice. And people have been dying for there to be a sequel, (laughs) as am I, you know, and I'm totally on board and would love to see it if, if we can get that to happen. But I think it's interesting, if this movie was to be released today, I think there would be a lot more support for it. Mm. And I think there were a lot more audiences that would be open to it in a way that, you know, was something we had to fight for when it first came out. Let's talk about your husband. Okay. You're married, but you guys met when you were only 18. Yes. And... At the time, you were just friends. And right. then you got married later. Right, much later. Much later. <laughs> uh, can you share that story with us? Yes. How did that happen? Well, we met. Both of us went to New York University. Mm-hmm. I was at the art school. He was at business school. In a lot of ways, on paper, it felt like we were opposites, but we really weren't. You know, I feel like we started dating when we were 19. And we just have this connection when it comes to he went to grad school and then he was starting his PhD in philosophy. He's a thinker. He's a creator. Oh. And yes, he's in technology, but in his own, in, in in that world, he is a creator and innovator and somebody who's trying to leave the world a little bit better. And that yeah. is something that we've always connected on. And there's nobody that I think about that has more integrity, you know, like he has more integrity in his pinky than most people I know <laughs> in my life. Really, really, it's true. And so we had you know, 20 years of of life. And so we met early. We dated for a while and we continued to date while I was in, in California. I moved to California and I lived there for 13 years and we were on and off. And as life happens and we were in our 20s, we had days where we were on and days and years when we were off. <laughs> <laughs> and I just feel very lucky and fortunate that we found each other again because we both, you know, there were, there was a period of years where we were not together and had other relationships. And, you know, I really didn't think that it was going to work out. And then I ended up working in New York a little bit more. And, you know, whenever I'd come to New York, I would reach out to my friends from college. And outside of our relationship, he was always one of my dearest friends. And we have a lot of friends in common, obviously, because we went to college together. And so we'd see each other. I've, But, you know, I met his girlfriends. And, you know, and so it was it was definitely an interesting few years. But then we were both unattached again, and 
somehow ended up falling back in love mm. and in a new way. And I think that what was special about it is that we grew up a lot and some of our kind of things that we would clash on didn't matter anymore because we lived enough to realize what place they had in our lives, you know. And I think we both had had lived enough of our lives. We'd seen enough of the world. He had, you know, created a, you know, a company. He was a creator. I'd been doing what I was doing. And we didn't feel, we really finally found peace in knowing that we could build a really great life together. And so, and, and we didn't expect to get married. I didn't want to get married, actually. Why? I had no interest in, huh. in it at all, actually. Yeah. And the only reason we are married today is because... Of him? Because of him. <laughs> really. I was living in L.A. and something changed in his life and he decided it was important to him. And I was like, really? And when he proposed, I was like, really? Like, what are you doing right now? <laughs> um, and then he told me why. And, you know, it didn't matter. I didn't want to get married and it didn't matter to me. And it mattered so much to him. So I said, okay, if this really means that much to you. And so we went and had a party. We were so old. We were so much older. And so we went to Mexico and invited our friends. And we just had a weekend where everyone just came and had a good time. And there we are. You you weren't old. I think there are a lot of people (laughs) who get married at that age. I know. But we had been in each other's lives for over 20 years. So that's what I mean in the sense of like we had we've lived a lot of life together. But what's cool is, you know, we've known each other for more than half Mm -hmm. of our lives now. And that is really special, especially you know, I feel like we've been through everything together and then life keeps throwing you curveballs. I had a tough year last year health-wise. And so, you know, you mm-hmm. think, like, there's nothing we can't get through. And then yeah. something hits you and then something happens. I had I was dealing with breast cancer last year. I'm going to be fine. But it brings you even closer, yeah. you know, and you think, how could we be, you know? And, and it just continues to evolve and I couldn't love him more. So you have two children and you have written a book You've published a children's book yes. called Always Anjali. Yes. And for listeners who don't know, this book basically talks about this little girl who struggles with her name. What was the inspiration behind the book? And do you have any plans to write more books like this one? So that book came from me being pregnant with my first mm. And basically spending a lot of time in bookstores because, you know, by the end, you're just kind of like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Just get this baby out of me. (laughs) And so I take long walks and spend a lot of time in bookstores reading. And I started kind of looking at children's books, thinking, what books do I want to have in my home? And, you know, like much of my other life in acting, found that there was not enough stories about people that reflected our world and there wasn't enough representation. The stuff that was out there was not reflective of the experiences and nuances that I know existed. And so because I tell stories, I thought, let me take a crack at it, not expecting it to be what it has become. And it was a long journey. So this is a series of books. So yes, oh, the answer, series. it's a series. Ah. The next one is coming out next year. Nice. And there'll be a number of Anjali books. And I basically thought about something that connects us all, all kids, Mm. and that is this feeling of feeling like you ever have to change anything about yourself to fit in. Especially name. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's something that happens to some. But overall, what I have found is that every kid, including adults, feels like they need to shift or change something about themselves to fit into whatever the the narrative is around them or whoever is around them. For Anjali, the entry point was her name. And that is something that I obviously, from what we talked about earlier, have dealt with. Oh, you have? Um, yes, because people ask me to change my name all the time. But and your so, name is so easy to pronounce. But when it comes to what we talked about earlier with Hollywood, people were threatened by it. You know, people did not want to. They didn't know what it was. They, they were confused by it. They, they knew it carried some cultural significance. And so they just wanted to whitewash it. And so in this book, you see the seven-year-old girl who is just a normal kid, you know, living in a New England town and gets a bike for her birthday. And her and her best friends, Mary and Courtney, go to the school fair and they all want to get matching license plates. And Anjali can't find her name. And not only because she can't find her name, but she gets bullied for it. And then she goes home and decides she's going to change her name. Mm. And so she has to learn why she's perfect exactly the way she is and why actually her name is really cool. And so the end of the book, you know, she realizes and, and she faces her bully. And so it touches on racism, bullying, confidence, power, owning yourself, identity. And, you know, it became a bestseller. I'm thrilled. I, I go to so many schools. I've been to so many school visits. I just had one on Friday. And I was so touched at the fact that this particular school had me do presentations for all of the kids from kindergarten up to fifth grade. Because like children's books, you know, they're really for everyone when you think about what the messages are. And especially and, sometimes parents read those books to their children. Well, that this is this is what I have learned and found and reason why I write. There's nothing you can't talk to kids about. Mm. And they want, they want the real stuff. Like there's a place for everything. There's a place for the stories about your pet dog. But they also <laughs> but they also want real stories and they want to talk about problems and they want to talk about like something that happened to them. My kids are obsessed with like, tell me a sad story. Tell me a, tell me a scary story. Like they want more. They just want more. And there is no better place to talk to your child about the issues of the world than in your lap through a book Yeah, that's age appropriate. And why not take those 15 minutes to make that little person more empathetic, more aware, so that when you're putting them into the world, we're just raising better little people. Hmm. Do you have any artistic role models? You know, there's definitely people that I love. You know, I, I read a ton. I consume, you know, so <laughs> much media because of my job, but I love it. I love TV. I love film. I love theater. I'm at the theater all the time. I love reading. I don't know. I mean, I'm just really struck by... I'll tell you, like, the people that I meet through my travels, through my work, through my school visits. Like, for me, I met someone this past Friday that really I heard the, the story of one of these teachers that really just touched my heart. And I'll carry that on, you know. And so or like a six-year-old boy who came up to me and shared something with me. I wrote when I when the book first came out, I was doing, a, you know, I was doing a whole book tour. And something that really struck me during my presentations, I wrote a piece about it for Thrive. And it's titled, What If the Bully is a Grown-Up? Because so many kids kept asking me that. Hmm. And I was so struck by the fact that like a five-year-old, when we talked about bullying and what do we do in the situations, and they would raise their hand and say, well, what if the bully is a grown-up? What do I yeah, do Especially then? in the age of social media. Yes. Hmm. And or, by the way, my teacher who's standing in this room right now still can't say my name. What do I do about that? And so, you know, I was so struck at how much this lives in the everyday lives, obviously in our lives, but the fact that it's touching our children makes my heart break. Mm. And so 
I want to get to the littles. I want to get to them early. Sheetal, how do we change that? My daughter struggles with this all the time. And she comes home and she's like, she changed her name to some anglicized American name that I did not even know about. And now she's like, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Why is it so hard for American society to grapple with this idea that it's a diverse society, it's a diverse country, there are different names, accents, people, mm-hmm. ethnicities. How do we make that happen? Well, I think it's it's I think it comes from the top. And I will tell you, like so the school that I just went to that I keep talking about, I was so struck. They made the principal, the assistant principal, and the heads of all the different departments came and had lunch with me and we were talking about it. And I was so impressed because they said, you know, we really wanted to bring you here. They made a point to have me come and talk about things. And then they reinforced it. And they basically said to the teachers, because they said, how do we do this with the kids? And I said, just tell them, because a lot of times they have a big immigrant community. Mm-hmm. And if it was a tough name, the kid would say, whatever you want to call me is fine. And so it's up to the teacher. So exactly. the teacher, I would say, no, no, say to them, no, no. What do your mom and dad call you? And let them say it. And I'll and, and even say, like, just help me with it. And so one of the things I do in my presentations is I say, everyone raise your anyone raise your hand if you get frustrated because it's been four or five or six times and someone can't say your mm-hmm. name wrong. And I always raise my hand because I'm like, I did too. So we we go through exercises of what we can do. Because I said, guys, people want to say our names right. We just have to help them, you know, yeah. and we have to be strong enough. And by the way, for a teacher to then say to a child, tell me how your mom says your name and then take the time to say it yeah. is so powerful. You know, these kids feel seen in a way that they never have before, and it's really important. That makes a lot of sense. So let's talk politics now. <laughs> <laughs> so you have stated on Twitter mm-hmm. that you are an independent. Is yes. that correct? Yes, okay. I am. And you also said that, but you will be voting for whoever the Democratic candidate yes. is in this election. Yes. Have you voted for other parties in the past? I'm assuming yes, because you are an independent. Yes. Okay. And how has current presidency <laughs> changed the way you view our party system in America? Well, it's not this current state. I have always been extremely upset at the two-party system. I've been talking about it forever since I'm a political junkie. I've (laughs) been obsessed with politics and civic duty since I was in high school. And the one who was like causing the debates in my classes, I remember there's this one teacher who was like, oh my God, she feels in my class. You know, um, but... I think our two-party system does a disservice to us and our country, and I wish it wasn't the case. And But that's where we are right now. And so, yes, I mean, there's no question in my mind that the guy in the White House, I hate, I don't even like saying his name, <laughs> needs to be out. I mean, he's a criminal. I don't think I need to go into all of the things yeah. that are wrong with him. I think we all know. <laughs> um, um, but I think for me, the hardest part about him being in office is he's such a con that the people who voted for him and are, quote, his base don't even realize that he's conning them, that he that they're not he's not helping them, hmm. you know. And so I don't blame them. I blame a system structurally that is so broken that they can't even see, like, how this is all happening and how like he's able to somehow con them. Right. And you wouldn't be able to con someone if there was systems in place that didn't allow for it. Mm. I mean, the way that our policies are in place right now, they do help. That's such a, good a certain point. a certain yeah. amount. And I get so angry even now when we hear like the talking points on the left. This is not 
who we are. No, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, you guys are not talking about what you need to talk about. There's nothing wrong with someone making money. Like, stop acting like capitalism is a bad thing. But talk about structurally what's wrong in our codes and our structures and laws that allow those people Mm -hmm. to not pay the taxes they should be Mm -hmm. paying. And then tell everybody else, by the way, do you know that that person made that much money and they didn't pay any taxes and you're making this much money and you're paying these many taxes? Mm -hmm. Like, is that fair? Mm -hmm. You know, is it fair that we pay the settlements of people in government who have been harassed, who have been accused of sexual harassment. Why is my money going towards that? Is it fair that we're paying for the expenses of everything they do? I want receipts. I want an accounting. (laughs) You tell me that we are in this deficit? Yeah, tell me what you're spending your money on. Let everyone see for themselves. You tell me if you don't have to have like an accounting of everybody's expense accounts that the world wouldn't be different if we saw what everyone was spending their money on. People would be on the streets Mm -hmm. if they saw like teachers can't even write off school supplies. Exactly. And these people are spending money on stuff that would make your head explode. I am a Bernie supporter, progressive, left-leaning, and as things are unraveling and what's happening right now, my support and my enthusiasm overall is just dying down, especially when I look at, as you said, Democratic Party. Like, I, I know Republicans are doing really poorly in terms of how they are managing things. But when, when I look at Democratic Party, it's no better. Uh, now, somebody may say that this is absolutely bullshit. No, it's much better than what who Republicans are and what they're doing. But at the end of the day, as you pointed out, there are so many structural issues that we face and both parties deal with them in a very similar fashion. So where do people like me go? right. At the end of the day, it's not about what people say. It's the policies and the actions Mm. that they take. And that's what you have to look at is who's willing to make those changes. Mm. Would anyone be willing to put term limits on Congress? Mm. You know, that's a huge thing. I think there's three things you can do immediately. Put term limits on Congress. Put term limits on the Supreme Court. Maybe not have nine people. Maybe it be something, you know, there's a different way like Buttigieg was talking about, which I really Mm. liked. Secure our democracy. Have automatic voter registration. If people really care about our country like they say they do, these are not things that should be scary. It's for the best interest, but they don't want to lose their power. By the way, I think this whole like also like progressive, non-progressive, like I don't understand. Like most when you look at policies that people believe in, they fall under that category. Like people act like Bernie's so far left. For the U.S. He's not far left for other countries. And that's where I think we're not putting things in context enough. I don't think we're talking about that, you know, when we're comparing kind of how we do things. And and by the way, it's not working for a lot of people. And if you if you show examples of how it is and and examples of how we treat our women and our Mm -hmm. families and, you know, I just I mean, I had to get to my husband was like, turn it off. Turn it off. I take it all in. I, I watch everything. I don't. I've stopped watching CNN, MSNBC. Like, I, I never watched Fox to begin right. with. When I look at an average American, they are all confused. They don't know what's happening. And there is this narrative that has been fed to them over the last, I don't know how many years, whether it's taxes or whether it's even socialism, this mm-hmm. idea. It has been fed over a period of a number of years and they've been brainwashed brainwashed. and it's very difficult to cut through that noise 
and say that, you know, this policy makes sense for you. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody thinks about it that way anymore. Well, that's why for me, it's about really or, separate. Yeah. Or for others. What I've also noticed is that people are so focused on themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I don't want my taxes to go up. So I don't care if somebody is dying because they don't have insurance as long as my tax doesn't go up, right? right? Yeah. Or if I have to do this, then I'm not doing it, which is such an individualistic and selfish approach to everything. Right. It's also not how you live in a society. It, it's not how you like live in a society. If you want to go live in the woods by yourself, yeah. then you could talk like that. But exactly. you live in a collective world. And And I would really hope that people, when they go and vote, they think about others as well. It's it's extremely important to think about yourself. Everybody does that. We are all human beings are conditioned to be self-centered. Mm-hmm. But we have to think about others. We have to retrain ourselves to say, okay, this will impact me. But how is it going to impact somebody who's not in a position of power, who doesn't have as much money, who is struggling, has two jobs, three jobs? What What will happen to them? Well, there's this old saying, Tennessee Williams, I forget it exactly how he put it, but the but the theme of it basically is that you're only as strong as your weakest link. Yeah. And so our country is really only Absolutely. as strong as our, as our, you know, people who are, who are struggling the most. Yeah. Okay, moving on to something more interesting. <laughs> Not interesting, but light. Um, as an artist, how do you measure success and growth? Do you think they are synonymous? Success and growth. Well, I think the definition of it matters, right? You know, I think the older kind of school of thought was that money equated success. And thankfully, I don't look at success that way. But I think growth in in obviously your work, in you as a person, in the stuff that you're putting out there, constantly evolving is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Success for me, and I had to really, from the very beginning of my career, define what it meant to me. And it wasn't about making the most money and being on the most popular show. I mean, that'd be nice, but that was never the driving factor. And a lot of my decisions, as you look at my career, I've done over 20 films, right? Mm -hmm. And most of them are independent films because that's the stuff where my heart is. And I wanted to tell the stories of people that I felt like were never told. Mm -hmm. And I had to turn down other projects. And a lot of people weren't happy with that. I turned down, you know, much more mainstream, quote, money-making, visible things Mm. because I chose to do other things. Mm. And so for me, but I could put my head down at night and think, okay, I'm making maximum impact with my work Mm. or hope to. I mean, I think for me, I I set goals for myself short-term and long-term, and you want to keep kind of resetting them if you meet them. But you have to keep pushing yourself because we Mm. can all do better and we can all do more. It's just a matter of kind of making the most out of what we have going for us and also allowing to, like, put, take, put your hand... If you've done well in something, it's so important to, like, reach your hand backward and pull someone up with mm-hmm. you. Sheila, there's a lot of conversation about representation in Hollywood, mm-hmm. especially for Asian-American actors. But even now, we see that it's primarily white, cishet male club. Yeah. Right? So... There are some people who think that rather than trying to include yourself in Hollywood per se, the conventional form of movie making, whatever it is, people are trying to navigate other ways, more like indie film space. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the independent film space has always existed. I mean, it needed to. I mean, and actually, 
it's probably more thriving. It's it's thriving more than it probably ever have because, in fact, the studio system is not. I mean, they're only making huge tentpole movies, you know, superhero movies, or you know, that this is what most of them who are multinational companies are making their money off of because they're looking at a global market and what are the stuff that's like the easiest common denominator that everyone will like across all languages, across all world. Like that's, at the end of the day, the only color they say is green. They don't care about the colors other than that. And so there has always been room for independent movies, but I think more so, I mean, what's crazy to me is like an independent movie could be $20 million, and that's independent. Mm. Like, for me, I don't make movies that are $20 million. <laughs> and so if someone gave me $20 million, like, I would lose my mind, and I would be like, oh, my God, I know I could make five movies with this, by the way. And so it's just been a fascinating time seeing. What's exciting is that, look, it's easier to make a movie today than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. You can make it on your iPhone. Nowadays, you see these festivals and people have made movies on their phones, which is pretty remarkable. And so you're going to be able to see voices and hear from people around the world that you might not have ever had access to. And that's really exciting. But on the other hand, we need to hold people accountable and make sure that the people who are telling our stories are allowing for nuance and and that we are uplifting the people who need to be uplifted. And if you are in a position of power, you know, open your community up, open your circle up, make sure you're inclusive of the people who are allowed on your platform. But how do we make them do that? Because even now we saw with Oscars, there were no female directors who were nominated, right? Not even white female directors, let alone women of color. How do we change that? Because you have to change it from the top. You have to change. Like I said, if you don't change the people in the positions who are making them, it's never going to matter. Like we can sit here and cry about it all we want. First of all, we can also prove that it's good business because, by the way, hiring women is good business. Mm -hmm. And we know that. But that being said, until the academy, the makeup of the academy reflects the people, it's not going to happen. So let's talk about your next project. Okay. What is your next project? (laughs) (laughs) So there's a number of things. I have a film called Hummingbird Hmm. that I produced and I'm also in. My partner is this wonderful filmmaker named Tanuj Chopra and he directed it and wrote it and He's right now in India, show running this great show called Delhi Crime. He's amazing. Mm. And we've been working on this movie together for over a year. We shot it. We're in post-production. And it's this really cool fantasy, dark superhero film, ah. all with people of color. And it's it's something I'm really proud of. It's very original. There's nothing like it out there. And so we're really kind of excited. We're still in post-production. But hopefully at the end of the year or next we'll find – it's kind of legs and, and home is for where it's going to come. So that is a big part of what I'm working on now. I'm in a movie called I'll Meet You There that yeah. we talked about that was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest. That's directed by Aaron Bilal, who's an amazing, wonderful director. I have two more books. I have the next Anjali book coming out next oh, nice. year. And I have another book as well that I wrote that will hopefully find its way in the next year as well. And I have a... TV show for kids that I'm in the middle of developing with some really cool partners, which I can't talk about too much about. (laughs) But it's all very exciting. There's a lot of stuff kind of in the works, and hopefully I'll be able to talk about much more concretely, but it's 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 cool. And we should all follow you on Twitter so we so we can be updated on all (laughs) your new projects. So what is your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at Sheetal Sheth, which is just my first and last name. My Instagram handle 
because by the time I was like finally joined the platform, <laughs> every variation of my name was taken. So I named it after a blog that I used to write called Beneath the Sheets with the Z. And so that is my Instagram handle. And between that and Twitter and Facebook, my, my husband, because he works in technology, was like, you have to get on these things. And so he made me. And he's right. You know, it's, yeah, it's you really, have to. you have to. And it's, and I love it. I mean, I've met so many interesting people through it. And I love the conversations that we're able to have. And it's an instant focus group. And it's a ton of information. If I have a question, like, about just parents, post it yeah, on I just Twitter. put it on there. And it's amazing <laughs> the amount of people that are ready with answers. I'm like, I have never even heard of this. <laughs> Where have I been? And Sheetal, in the end, if you were to define America, how would you do that? Oh, my gosh. Well, America is supposed to be the best part of all of us. Hmm. And so you can't have America without all of that being kind of seen, you know, hmm. and that would be something amalgamous so that just like, I don't know what you would use to represent everything. But it's for me, it always it was it was the idea of more and better. Hmm. And so that's really what the, the idea of what America and I, and I think that's what we need to get back to is like, why was America even formed? It was the idea of what America was for our founding fathers was so profound, actually, mm -hmm. creating a place where we could have freedom and be able to be the best version of ourselves. And that's mm -hmm. really what it means to me. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening. We have a Patreon. If you want to support, you can check link on our website and social media and also tune in for next week's episode when we will bring another amazing story. And if you have time, write us a good review and subscribe. That's how we grow our podcast. And if you want us to bring these amazing stories every week, help us grow by sharing our podcast.